0: I've got a lot that I want to try to cover today, so I'm going to kind of deviate a little bit from what we normally do, and we're just going to hit the ground running this morning. We've got a lot of scriptures that we're going to be reading throughout, uh, throughout the lesson. Today we're going to try to finish up what we've been talking about. Um, we hopefully have been seeing that God is moving ahead with uh, making uh, changes that are designed to to assist mankind, to aid him in his struggle and his sinful nature, and that nature's disregard for uh, respect for the desires of God to change men's hearts back to him. Because that's always been the heart of God. Once man had had, uh, fallen, God had desired to win him back, to restore him, uh, to rejuvenate that connection that had been a part of that relationship between Adam and Eve and God in the in the beginning. And uh, first we, we saw that it was Adam that was the primary character. And, of course, that's where the trouble began, was with Adam. And the next main character that we came to see that God was uh, revealing to us was Noah. And he had a great part in the plan of God to save mankind from this... Uh, evil world that had erupted because of the sinfulness of man's heart. So Noah became a a savior to mankind. And the next one we are introduced to is Abram or Abraham. And Abraham became known as a man of faith in God. And Adam and Eve's problem in the garden had been that they had listened to the wrong voice. They had put their faith and their confidence and their trust in the serpent instead of in what God had told them. They had switched that faith. They, they had a doubt about God, and they had faith in what the serpent was telling them. And don't we find that same event happening today? People listening and putting their faith in the wrong voice. Satan speaks so many lies into our lives that we can believe as truth. And it causes our faith to be switched away from what God has told us is truth. And we begin to believe the lies of the enemy when his, his truth is not truth at all. It is nothing but lies. And yet he can become so convincing to us. And it's so easy for us to believe him because he likes to tell us things that really appeal to our flesh. And he knows how to make those things stick in our lives. But Abraham was different. Abraham was going to be used by God to help restore man's faith in God. Which was necessary. It was essential. Very essential. So when God chose Abraham, he did so that this faith could be restored between God and man. And it was going to become the descendants of Abraham that God was going to eventually use uh, to bring about the restoration of that faith that God desired for man to have restored in his hearts. And so God was going to bring a multitude, as his promise was declared to Abraham, a multitude of faithful-hearted followers It was going to revolutionize man's relationship with God. God was going to create from Abraham a promise that he said that he was going to produce a multitude of people, creating a physical nation of Abraham's descendants and a spiritual nation as well. God was promising Abraham, something very different, very special. Not only was he promising to produce a nation, a physical nation from him, but he also was going to produce a spiritual nation, a nation of faith. A nation of faith. This thought of a physical nation and a spiritual nation is hinted at uh, when God was speaking to Abraham on different occasions and promising him, if you can count the dust of the earth, then you can count the multitude that's going to come from you. That was the physical nation. Then he tells him another place, he says, now if you can count the stars in the heavens, then you can count your, the multitude that's going to come from That's the spiritual. He was going to produce two nations, a physical nation that God was going to use to bring about that spiritual nation. So he is a very important cog in the plan of God. God's going to use him to do some great things. Now we know it was going to be several hundred years down the road but it was going to come to pass that God was going to turn the people who were descended from Abraham into a mighty nation. And this nation was going to be peopled with individuals who had faith in the the God that Abraham had relied upon. Through this nation, through this physical nation that was going to come from Abraham, God was going to show the world how blessed life could be if you would learn to have faith in God. He was going to use this nation that was going to become Israel He was going to use them to show the world what could happen if you would put your faith in God and let him lead your life and the blessings that would flow into your life as a result of that. Great and precious was this plan of God. And so it was that this nation out of Abraham's loins and Sarah's womb started as one family that would move down into Egypt at the direction of Joseph, who was one of Jacob's sons, and he was a great-grandson of Abraham. And it was during their 400 years of life that was going to be spent in Egypt that God was then going to lead them out. He was going to take them out of Egypt, and he was going to take them out as a mighty nation. They had entered in as one family, but they left as a nation of millions. God led them out of Egypt, a free people under the yoke of no tyrant, no Pharaoh, no earthly king. They were a free people. A free people. God led them through the directions of his next special man that we come across. His name, of course, was Moses. Moses would lead them to the base of a mountain called Sinai. And it was at the base of this mountain, Sinai, that God was going to cause them to camp and to linger there for a while. And they were going to wait on God for his directions. That's always a good thing to do. It's a hard thing for us to do. How many of you like waiting for anything? We we live in a world where you have to wait for virtually nothing. And it has spoiled us to the point where we don't want to wait for anything. And here is God. He calls his special people out. And the first thing he makes them do is wait. Wait. Isn't that just like God? Wait. Slow down. Take it easy because I got some stuff I want to tell you. I got some things I need to instill in you to make you my people. I'm not going to take you where I'm going to eventually lead you to that's going to be your land. First, there's some things we got to get settled. How many of you know that God is a God of order? He's not haphazard. He has a plan. He has a purpose in everything that he does. And this is one of those times when his plan is for them to wait. For them to wait. Because they had come out of Egypt as a nation of millions of souls and they were yet without an official form of government. Do people need to be governed? What had happened in the pre-Noah world. There was nobody controlling anybody there. It was was a chaotic free-for-all. There was no government. Men, if left to themselves without any type of governing uh, measures being placed upon their lives, (laughs) you've got chaos. You've got millions of people under no authority Other than God. And so the very first thing that he has to do is help them form some type of a government, some way to govern themselves. And so God calls Noah, their leader, Noah, Moses, their leader, to the mountaintop, to Mount Sinai. He calls him to come up higher because I've got some things I want to tell you, Moses. So Moses goes up to the mountaintop and for 40 days and 40 nights, God is there speaking to Moses concerning the way that he was going to establish their system of being governed. This was going to be unlike any other system that had ever been set in motion in the world. Because in this system, it was going to have as its head not a man, but God. Their leader, their king, their overseer was going to be God. It wasn't going to be a man. It was God that was going to govern them. Novel. This had never been done before. God was showing them something new that had never happened before. Now, I hope that we can see a very close similarity here between this story and the one that the Gospels tell us about the coming of the Son of God. There was 400 silent years that took place from the Old Testament to the beginning of the New Testament. And at the end of that 400 silent years, the people were led out of bondage by Jesus, who also spent 40 days and nights alone with the Father. And when he returned, he showed the people the law, and he proceeded to lead them to the promise. The very thing that Moses is doing to the people. God is giving us a peek at what he's going to do later on. He does that throughout the whole Old Testament, folks. He gives us little glimpses, little pictures of what he's going to do sometime later on. And this is one of those situations. So God laid out on that mountain rules that were going to be lived by, rules that were later going to be called the law of God and the commandments. These laws were going to have the power to control every form of interaction uh, that took place between uh, one another and between themselves and God. It was going to control their entire lives. So God, through the use of these laws, sought to raise up a nation which was going to become a symbol of righteousness to all of the other nations that were going to surround them. And as long as the people would adhere to these laws, God was able to bless them in bountiful ways. And that's always been the desire of God for every one of us, to bless us in bountiful ways. And a lot of that is up to us. A lot of that depends on the choices that we make. Because sometimes our choices will close doors that God would rather have open, and they open doors that God would rather have closed based upon choices that we make. And it takes the ability of God to bless us in the way that he would like to bless us out of the picture. But what he was trying to do with this nation was to bring them to a point where he could pour out blessings so that people could see, if you live under my my directions, your life is going to be blessed. You're going to be a blessed people. It was a great concept. And when it was followed, it was going to assure that these people of God would stand out from every other nation around them. Unfortunately, the enactment of the law on its own was not enough to produce an actual righteous nation. Wasn't God's fault. While it was able to help control the actions of the people, it still remained ineffective in the effort to transform the condition of the heart of the people. That's where the problem lies. Always has and continues. It's the heart. In the heart of some of the people, there remained that silent and that hidden desire to rebel against what was good and right. They had trouble with The laws, they had trouble with the rules. We still have people today that have trouble with laws and trouble with rules. In the heart, there remained that silent and that hidden desire to rebel against what was good and right. They instead had that longing, that that ravenous hunger to appease the desires of their sinful flesh. And this situation caused the great apostle Paul to write something related to this very dilemma. And I want us to turn to Romans chapter 8 and verse number 3. If you have your Bibles today. Romans chapter 8 and verse number 3. It reads, for what the law could not do in that it was weak through the flesh God did by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh on account of sin he condemned sin in the flesh. Paul says here that the law was weak through the flesh. It was weak through the flesh. What does that mean? I want to help us put that in a in maybe a more understandable context. I, the law exposed sin for what it was. The law revealed sin for what it was. And it did so by exposing the various symptoms of sin. Now, if you go to a doctor today, you've got these symptoms And you go to a doctor, and the doctor will ask you, well, what's wrong today? And you tell him your symptoms. Well, I've got this headache, I've got this congestion. And and as you tell him the symptoms, the doctor will then diagnose your symptoms, and he will give you something to take care of those symptoms. And the law did that. It showed us what the symptoms were and it would deal with the symptoms that you were dealing with. But all that the law could be expected to do was to treat your symptoms. Now, when the doctor treats your symptoms, does that cure you? No. He's just making your headache go. Well, take these pills, that'll take your headache away. Well, what's causing your headache? We don't know, but just take these pills. and We're treating your symptoms because we don't know what the cause is. All that the law could do was treat the symptoms. It couldn't produce a cure for sin. It could only treat the symptoms. That's all it could do. And the cause of course, was located in the diseased area of the heart. We can still today treat our symptoms, but it doesn't mean we're cured. If nothing's ever happened to the heart where the problem is, we're not cured, folks. We're just dealing with symptoms. The problem's still there, and it's going to come back. Because that's what happens when you just treat symptoms. The problem is still there, and it's going to resurface at some point. And so all the law could do was treat the symptoms. And so, while the law may have proven to be ineffective in changing the condition of the human heart, it was still going to prove to be useful as a sort of deterrent that played an important role in cur- in curtailing uh, the people under God's government from straying completely away from doing right god was still going to be able to use it to help control the actions of the people to help that get out of hand, uh, prevent that from getting out of hand and there were of course those periods of time When the power of sin became too much for the people to resist and they would fall away from God. The nation would backslide. It would sin. It would quit doing the do's and start doing the things it wasn't supposed to do and they would begin to backslide and fall away from God. And then God would have to come in and bring them back. Trying to restore what was best for them and they didn't have the sense to know that and God does the same thing for us and we are just as pig-headed as they were sometimes because God tries to bring us back and we come fighting him kicking and screaming because we don't know what's good for us we don't understand that what he's doing is for our good because to us it feels like he's cramping our style he's you know he's He's doing things to us on purpose because he wants to hurt us. That's never the intention of God. Even though it may feel like that or it may seem like that, that's not the purpose of God. And, and the people would get it in their minds that, you know, we're tired of all this stuff. These regulations, we just want to party and have a good time. Sometimes you can party and that's okay, but you can't live like that your whole life because that's not what's best for you even though it's what the flesh likes to do, that's not necessarily what's best for us. We've got to trust God to know what is best for our lives. And that's bringing us back to that faith in God, having confidence in Him. There's one thing I think we might forget about when we read about the law in the books of Exodus through Deuteronomy, and that thing is that while it seems restricting and demanding on the part of God upon people of God, we've got to remember God is love. Because if you forget that and you're looking at the law, God doesn't seem to be like God is love. And when kids look at parents that love them and want to restrict some of the things that they do, they don't really look at it like they love me. They look at it like they don't like me anymore. Because they're not letting me do what I want to do. But there really is love involved. The parent who doesn't really love the kid will let them do anything they want to do. But if you're a parent and you see your kid doing things that they shouldn't be doing because you know in the long run it's going to hurt them, you're going to step in and you're going to do something about it. And that's a sign of love. It's what some people call tough love, but it is love nonetheless. And God loves us. He is love. And just because we don't think He loves us at times doesn't mean that what He's doing isn't out of love. It's always, always out of love. And you've got to remember that even when it doesn't look like it, even when it doesn't sound like it, it is always out of love. Believe that because it is the truth. It is the truth. You've got to factor that truth into the study of the law of God. What God was asking of His people was those things that didn't come naturally to them. It won't because we're sinners. And He's asking us to come up higher, to come out of our sin and and join Him. And it's foreign to us. It's going to be a hard transition to make, But it was one that needed to be made in order for them to show the rest of the sinful world what they were missing out on by leaving the one true loving God out of their lives. You miss everything when you leave God out of your life. You gain everything when you've got him in your life. And that's something the world doesn't understand, but they need to understand it. And the only way they're going to see it is through us. We're it. We're it. The flesh never enjoys being told that it must rein itself in. No matter what the issue is that needs to be addressed. We don't, our flesh does not like to be told, don't do that. We've had to face that since we were kids. We deal with it all the time. You like people telling you what you can do and what you can't do? You do? Well, you're, you're a marvel. <laughs> because most of us, we don't like being told. Especially if it's something that the flesh really wants. We're going to figure out a way to get it. Because that's us. And that's the part of us that's got to die. That's the part of us that's got to be pushed down, as Paul said, daily. And that's not easy, is it? It's not easy. There were some specific points of the law that were actually intended to become major parts of God's role in his work of bringing man back into relationship with him. So not only does the law have an impact and an effect upon man, God is also included in the law. He made the law, but he is also a part of the law. And the law affects him, and it affects us. God binds himself to his law, meaning we shouldn't break it, And he won't break it because it's his law. And the reason it's his law is because it comes from him, his love. And he cannot deny that because that is him. Any more than we can deny who we are and the things, the actions that we take, the words that we speak, that's us. And We can deny it and say, I didn't say that, but if you said it, you said it and that's you. That's a part of you. And God cannot deny what he has said because that's a part of him. So there's some specific points to the law that God binds himself to, and especially when it's related to his relationship with us and bringing us back into fellowship with him. Look in Galatians chapter 4, verses 4 through 5. I've got my my cheater going on here. And that's just for time's sake. Galatians chapter 4, verses 4 through 5. This says, But when the fullness of the time had come, God sent forth his Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, that we might receive the adoption as sons. When the time was right, God sent forth His Son, made of a woman, but also important. He didn't stop there, just made of a woman. Made in accordance with the law. What law is this connected to? Part of it is connected to the incorporation of the blood sacrifice as the means of the temporary method of dealing with the sins of the people who, uh, well, over time, it's going to evolve into something that can fall upon the shoulders of only God to successfully fulfill. Hebrews chapter 10 and verse number 4. Hebrews chapter 10 and verse number 4. I'm getting my Bible all messed up here. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 4. It says, For it is not possible that the blood of bulls and goats could take away sins. Now, under the law, they sacrificed bulls and goats and all kinds of animals in blood sacrifice and that was to atone for the sins of of the people for one year. What does that mean? It didn't take away the sin. It simply moved it ahead a year because the next year they had to offer another sacrifice. And then the year after that they would have to offer another sacrifice and the year after that another sacrifice. They had to offer sacrifices every year because it didn't cover it. It didn't take it away. It only moved it removed it from the sight of God for a year. So it wasn't possible that this blood sacrifice of animals was sufficient to take away sins forever. It didn't have the power to satisfy what was needed in order to take away the sins and not be remembered against us anymore. The shedding of our own blood does nothing to improve our status as sinners. If we have not done what needs to be done in our hearts in order to transform us from being a sinner into becoming a child of God, then we're going to be found to have died in our sins when we die. Let's look at John chapter 8 verses 21 and 24. John chapter 8, verses 21 through 24. It says, Then Jesus said to them again, I am going away, and you will seek me, and will die in your sin. Where I go, you cannot come. So the Jews said, Will he kill himself because he says, Where I go, you cannot come? And he said to them You are from beneath, I am from above. You are of this world, I'm not of this world. Therefore I said to you that you will die in your sins, for if you do not believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. If you don't get transformed inside your heart, you're going to be a sinner all your life. And when you die and haven't taken care of that problem in your heart, you're a sinner. You can have your blood spilled, die, and if you haven't taken care of the problem, you're a sinner. So us providing our own blood as a sacrifice for our own sins doesn't do squat because we're sinners. We have to have something different to help us. However we are identified within the arena of the heart, when we pass from this life, will be how we are known by God. There's a scripture in Ecclesiastes, chapter 11, verse 3, that says, as a tree will fall, so will it lie. That's profound. Actually, it is pretty profound. What it's telling you is the condition that that tree was in when it was uprooted and fell is how it's going to remain. And however we meet our eternity in life is how we will remain. The condition has to be changed before death in order for there to be hope for us. When you die a sinner, it's done, it's over, it's finished. You had your opportunity while you were alive, but when you're dead, you're dead. It's done. Now is the time of salvation. While you're breathing and above ground, this is the time to change the heart. Now, because you won't be able to do that after you're dead. The only thing that can help us get away from this complicated mess of sin is if we can find a sinless sacrifice to take our place in death as that first hurdle that we have to get over. Let's look at 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse number 21. A lot of scriptures. A lot of scriptures. 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse number 21. The good news is, for he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God in him. There's a hope. There's a hope. God has provided for us that sinless sacrifice that we need. Because remember, if you just get a sacrifice that's full of sin and it dies, it hasn't done anything. It hasn't settled anything. It's just paid the debt for itself because the wages of sin is death. Okay, so this hurdle, this complicated hurdle has, been taken, has taken place because now we have this sinless sacrifice. But wouldn't you know it, there's still another hurdle that had to be addressed from the standpoint of the law. Let's turn to Leviticus Chapter 25, verses 47 through 50. Remember, this is the law now. This is the law. God has bound himself to his law. Leviticus 25, verses 47 through 50. It says, now if a sojourner or a stranger uh, close to you becomes rich and one of your brethren who dwells by him becomes poor and sells himself to the stranger or sojourner close to you or to a member of the stranger's family, after he is sold, he may be redeemed again. One of his brothers may redeem him, or his uncle or his uncle's son may redeem him, or anyone who is near of kin to him in his family may redeem him, or if he is able, he may redeem himself. Thus he shall reckon with him who bought him. The price of his release shall be according to the number of years from the year that he was sold to him until the year of Jubilee. It shall be according to the time of a hired servant for him. This is kinsman relationship. A kinsman redeemer. God has established in his law that not anybody just anybody can redeem somebody else. According to what God tells us in his law and he has subjugated himself to his law if he is going to win back redeem back humanity something else has to transpire. There has to be this sacrifice that's related both to God and to man. How in the world is he going to pull that off? He, he is up in the stakes here, folks. It can't just be anybody among us. We couldn't just have a sinless person die. They have to be related to us. And the problem is, we can trace our lineage all of the way back to Adam and Eve, but there is not one man or woman in all of our history who was without sin. And when we come from a human family, that is definitely not heavenly. Are you beginning to get the picture here? We're in trouble. And there's really nothing that we can do to get ourselves out of it. So, how's God gonna make it possible so that He could, in fact, be related to us in order that He could redeem us? Enter the only begotten Son of God, who through the miracle described for us in Luke chapter 1, verses 31 through 35, which tells us that the Spirit of God overshadowed Mary, this woman, and she became with child of God. So that her son, who's going to be born, is related both to God and to man. He is called son of God and son of man for a very important reason. Because that's the only way this thing's going to work. So God has solved that problem. But guess what? that's still not going to be enough in order for God to completely finish doing what he needed to do in order to transform us from sinner to saint. It gets more complicated. Remember, our problem was that in sin, it warped our hearts. And and even though our sins could be wiped clean, unless our hearts were changed, we would still continue to sin. The problem was still there. the Son of God who became our Redeemer didn't stop with buying us back unto God. He became not the one who dealt with the symptoms. He became the one who procured the cure. He became the one who could change the heart. He could affect the attitude of the heart. And what we read about in, in the book of Acts when they were gathered together in that upper room and had that experience with God, that was that process we know as salvation that took root. And that was where the Spirit of Christ came down and just filled that room and entered into the heart and changed them. And that process still is in effect today. That same spirit is still working. It's still moving to transform us and change us within. And I I hope that we understand that salvation is epic. Salvation is powerful. It's dynamic. It's incredible and wonderful and thousands of other glorious terms that that we could use uh, to try to describe it. Anybody who's experienced can, can testify to that. It's, a, it's an incredible experience within our hearts. It has the power to produce a complete metamorphosis within us, within our hearts. How many of you have ever, you remember in school when they taught us about metamorphosis, this transformation that takes place between the caterpillar and the butterfly? The caterpillar doesn't look anything like the butterfly, We started out looking like the caterpillar. But when God's finished with us, we're the butterfly. That's metamorphosis. That's the transformation that has to happen within the heart. And that's the purpose of salvation. Is to change us from the caterpillar to the butterfly. So what what I want to tell you from this point on, it's not meant to downplay or detract from this experience of salvation. But salvation is just the beginning point for what God really wants to do. That just gets us back in the game. And I I want us to, and I'm going to have to hurry through this, but I want to explain the destination that God has in mind for us by taking a look again back in in the story of Noah Because in this account, it tells us something very important. Uh, The account of the process of God's uh, preservation of a token of humanity through the means of Noah building this ark. And and the ark is filled with all kinds of spiritual types. Physical things that are are meant to convey some spiritual concepts, some connection to something that's spiritual. But we're only going to focus on the types that help represent what it is that God has done. uh, Everything that he has done for us in order uh, to bring us to this point. Uh, and in the scriptures we in the scriptures of Genesis chapter eight, four through twelve, uh, it talks about this process the The ark has already gone through all the uh, the, the the ravages of the storm it 's sitting on top of Mount Ararat, and they 're just waiting now for the water to subside and as they're sitting there waiting for the water to subside, the Bible tells us that Noah sends forth a raven, which goes out and doesn't return the whole time. Um, in 1 Kings chapter, four, chapter 17, verses 4 through 6, we won't read that, but you can read that, it's the story of Elijah, the prophet, being saved by ravens. There was a drought, a famine, but God had told and told Elijah that he was going to prepare for him salvation. And so these ravens would come by and they would feed him. They'd feed him bread and meat. So he was saved by the ravens. Elijah, this prophet of God, is the one mentioned as, as a part of this story. And Elijah's also spoken about in Matthew chapter 17, verses 1 through 8, which is talking about Christ on the Mount of Transfiguration, Who were the two images that appeared with Christ? Moses and Elijah. Moses represented what? What's he known for? He's known for the law. What is Elijah known for? He was the prophet. He was the prophet. So here we have Elijah... Connected with ravens, being connected to the prophets. These two constructs, this law and the prophets, are the two major instruments that God used in the Old Testament to help procure the condition of righteousness under the covenant toward his people. He used the law and he used his prophets. The scripture talks about law and prophets. So it's not a far stretch for us to say that the raven released by Noah could represent the office of the prophets used by God in service to help direct the lives of his people toward righteousness. So back in Genesis chapter 8, verse number 8, we find that Noah sent forth also a dove. So he's sending out this raven, which could represent the prophets. Now he also we're told, sends out a dove. And as he sends out this dove, the Bible tells us the dove comes back to him because the flood was still on the face of the whole earth. What was the problem with the flood? That was God's curse, was it not? The destruction of the world by the flood, that was the curse. The dove, what does the dove represent? What happened when Jesus was baptized in the Jordan River by John the Baptist? Descended like a dove. The Spirit of God descended like a dove. The dove represents the Spirit of God. And when the Spirit of God was released from the ark to search for a resting place, a place to dwell, because of the curse, it could find no place to dwell. It didn't stay. It didn't linger because the curse was still there. But the next verse tells us that the dove, because of the curse, could find no place to stay. So the Spirit of God had to remain in the heavenlies, in the mountains, if you will, until the curse could be lifted. The Spirit of God only moved through the prophets who spoke for God as he moved upon them. Yet the Spirit did not remain housed in them. The Spirit of God would move upon the prophets from time to time, but it didn't dwell there, it didn't stay there. Then in Genesis chapter 8, verses 10 through 11, we find that the Spirit of God returned in the evening. What is the evening? The evening and the morning were the first day. The evening is the beginning of a new day. That Spirit returned at the beginning of a new day, and something else had happened. It had an olive branch in its mouth. The Spirit of God had found one who could speak of peace between God and mankind. The ministry of Jesus had at last dried up the curse from the earth and once done, he returned back unto the Father. And then finally in Genesis chapter 8 and verse 12, the dove was released for the final time because at last... God had found a place to dwell upon the earth which had become a brand new place free of contamination of sin which had previously corrupted everything. This is revealing what was to transpire in an upper room in Jerusalem 2,000 years ago from us on the day of Pentecost. Everything that God began to do every step over hundreds and thousands of years was so that he could produce a way To break break the curse of sin, thereby opening up the doorway for him to come down among us and dwell with us, or rather dwell within us, everything that he had done. We were created to house his glory. And he saw to it that it was eventually restored to us. John 14 verses 1 through 3 is the promise of Jesus to his disciples and to us as well, that he was building a house, a dwelling place here in our world. He would bring heaven down to earth so that we could prepare ourselves and others for when we would leave this world, this temporal place, and exchange it for an eternity in a heavenly abode. What we feel now, the Bible has told us, is just the earnest of our inheritance. It's just a tiny, tiny part of what God wants us to have. How fantastic is salvation? It's glorious. It is just a grain of sand in what God has in store for us. How big is God? That spiritual entity that defies description. He fills the universe. He fills space. He fills time. Scientists tell us they don't know how big the universe is. As far as they go, there's still more to to, to, uh, discover. This expanse, it it seems to be limitless. So how much do you think of God's essence does it take to fill us... And through that, change us less than an atom's worth. You think that's the power of God? The Spirit of God is not powerful. If one tiny atom can change us, metamorphose us from caterpillar to butterfly, and that's just the basic beginning of what God has in store for us. When we get to that other side and our mortality puts on immortality, we become immersed in him. And that means we will be in a situation we will be totally saturated. There's no way to tell where where he begins and, and, and and we leave off. There's no way to tell because he we are so saturated with God we can't even fathom what that's going to be like we can we can't even you know how you feel when the spirit of god has moved in your heart and you feel so good inside multiply that by a billion and if we didn't have new bodies we would explode you think god is good here you wait till you get there. Because folks, you ain't seen nothing yet. We have a glorious hope that this world doesn't even touch. What God has prepared for us will blow our minds. So not only did God take care of restoring us back to what we were in the beginning, but he went above and beyond. Above and beyond that for us. And the best is yet to come. So when you start having down days and when you start having problems and when you start experiencing troubling situations in this life, you think about what's coming up. You think about what you're facing on the other side. And it'll give you strength to endure. It'll give you something to hold on to, to anchor to that, just like Paul said, I suppose that all the problems that I've had in this world don't mean squat when compared to what God has prepared for me. All the little trivial things that we have to go through, they don't seem trivial at the time. I know that, but they are trivial when they're compared to what God has waiting for us in the wings, if you will. Take hope. Be encouraged. Let that fill your heart with hope and promise because that's what God wants you to know today. What's coming up is going to blow your socks off. Praise God. Let's pray. My God, thank you today, Jesus, for what you have done for us.